Well, last Sunday I preached to you out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we had a mountaintop experience out of Ecclesiastes because you probably don't hear many sermons out of that book. Uh, and I told you one of the things interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, its name is a Greek word that we find in the New Testament, ecclesia. And uh, that's the root of it. And so this morning, I, as a follow-up to Ecclesiastes, I want to talk to you about the ecclesia. It's the church. And so... Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, the one who's speaking, the preacher, chapter 1, verse 1, the preacher who's speaking to the group. And so this morning we're going to talk about the group that he's speaking to, the ecclesia, the church. And uh, the reason I'm doing this is really several fold. Number one, we, in the moment we're going to be ordaining three uh, deacons to our deacon body. Um, and, and I thought about when I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I thought, well, I'll do two sermons because out at the other campus, we didn't have the men to, to ordain. And then I thought, we don't have two churches. We have one church. Amen? We have one church meeting in two locations. So if God put it on my heart to speak to you <clears throat> concerning what we're going to do this morning, it also has application to them. Because I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to the church. And this morning I'm going to talk about the church. Because I'm, I fear today that there's much misinformation or no information concerning what the church is. Now, we all know what the church is, don't we? I'm not sure. So first of all, I want to talk to you about the meaning of the church. The meaning of the word church. In the New Testament, the word church is a translation of ecclesia. I just told you that. Hope you were listening. Which is derived from ek, kalo. Ek is a preposition. Kalo is a verb. It means to call forth. Hence, it denotes an assembly, a summoned group, a called out group, a select body out of another group. It's called out. So you and I are called out from something and we're called to something. That's the ecclesia. It's used in the New Testament 115 times. That word is used that many times. Uh, in these instances, two relate to the Hebrew congregation, three relate to the Greek assembly, and 110 relate to the Christian church as we know it today. Its ordinary use in the New Testament is to designate, now listen to me very carefully, a specific local assembly of Christians organized for the maintenance of the worship, to experience worship, to keep the doctrines, the ordinances, the discipline of the gospel, and to unite in a special covenant relationship with Christ and with one another to proclaim the gospel to the world. That is the ecclesia. That is the church. But now hear me very carefully. The, the word also denotes the entire body of the elect of heaven and earth. Here the word is used figuratively. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, the church is conceived as the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife. And so... 
There is the ecclesia, the church, First Baptist Church, Daytona Beach. We are the church. But the word also means the vast, invisible church. This morning, you can't see the church. You see this church. But you don't see the church from the perspective that God sees it. The church is around the world. The church is meeting here. It's meeting there. We don't even see all the church in Daytona Beach. We see our local assembly. Several years ago, I was privileged to go to China. And on Sunday morning, we went to the state church. It was the church that Bush 41 was a member of when he was an ambassador over there. A very large church. It was most interesting. We walked in, and people got up and gave us their place to sit. It obviously wasn't a Baptist church by that, that very thing. Oh, please, have, have, sit here. And they ushered us down to a prominent place. And, and uh, they just were so kind and so nice to us. And I talked to one of the ministers afterwards, and, and uh, I talked to him about what he said because what he said was, was kind of interesting. And he said, because it's a state church, there are certain things I cannot say. Well, what he cannot say guts the gospel. But here were all these people, and they were worshiping in a sense, and, and, uh, but, but what they were singing and what they were saying and what they were hearing preach was nullified because the state was involved. There were people in the congregation who would have taken the pastor out if he'd have gotten on the wrong topic. It's that hard-pressed. That was Sunday morning. Sunday night, we met with the underground church. Oh, my soul. <laughs> Oh, my soul. You think we have church. They have church. Because any minute, they might not be able to be alive. The oppression is that real. We literally walk down an alleyway at midnight, not saying a word once you leave the street to go to a place that each week changes. And when we got there, it was packed. Packed. And... I don't speak Chinese, but I listen. I heard, and I'm telling you, that was kind of it was worse than wind shape. I was doing this and doing that, and just it was wonderful. The, the the joy of the Lord was so present in that environment. The pastor there had been taken prisoner some 40 years before. He was a contemporary of Watchman Nee, and it's one day the authorities just came in and took him. Took him. His wife didn't know where he was for 40 years. They took him to Siberia to kill him. And they didn't want to kill him, so they just put him out there in sub-freezing weather so that the weather would kill him. And he said, Brother Owens, look at my hands. 40 years I worked outside, no frostbite. <laughs> they couldn't kill him. He was such a problem and they didn't want to kill him because he'd have been a martyr and word would have gotten back till they sent him back home. So he just walks in one day. His wife had gotten a job cleaning buildings and put two boys through college. He's walked back in. Hello, honey. How are you doing? Oh, I haven't seen you in 40 years. I, I, I'm telling you, some of the stories that we'll hear in heaven about people that have sacrificed, you know, some of us, we think it's a sacrifice to get up at 7 to be here by 9.45. I mean, that's not a sacrifice. But when we get to the other side, we're going to meet people.
who know what it's all about. That's a part of the vast invisible church. It refers to all of the redeemed, and it's the church you can't see because it has no visible earthly congregation that, that we can see. The word is used to refer to the universal invisible church, but this church has no officers, it has no laws, it has no ordinances, and it has no discipline. Years ago, I was talking to a lady, and I was asking her about if she was, I was doing a revival in her church, and I asked her, I said, are you a member here? She was very voracious in her, her questions and whatnot. I said, are you a member here? She said, oh, no, I'm a part of the vast invisible church. I said, you know, the problem I have with that church is I never see it take an offering. It's out there doing something, but it's not... I said, you need to be part of a local assembly. And when the Bible talks about church, more times than not, it's talking about the local assembly of believers. You and I, right here, right now, there is the vast church. There is brothers and sisters around the world. But most of the time, the only church we have anything to do with is the local visible congregation. These are the churches of the New Testament and of Christendom with their ordinances, their officers, their commissions, and their daily witness to the world. In the New Testament, we read constantly of the churches of Judea, the churches of Macedonia, the churches of Galatia, the seven churches in the book of the Revelation of Asia Minor. If we belong to a church, it will be a local, down-to-earth congregation made up of human beings just like me and just like you. That is the church. So don't come here with this, I'm a part of the vast invisible church, so don't expect me to ever be here. I'm out there. Don't expect me to ever give any money. I'm a part of them. Don't expect me to ever do any witnessing. Don't expect me to ever do anything. It's a cop-out. You need to be a part of a local congregation. And that local congregation does the work of ministry. A church is valid. That is a real, true church only if it conforms to the Word of God, period. It must follow in character, doctrine, practice, and organization the Constitution given to us by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. This is the only form authorized by Christ. The church in its organizational form is plainly delineated in the New Testament. The divine constitution of the church in the New Testament is always, and here's where I'm going to get in trouble. That's okay. Congregational in control. Period. That's what's in the Bible. We are a congregationally controlled congregation. We don't have a hierarchy who dictates to us what we're to believe, how high we're to jump, where do we stand, when we sit down, and what we're supposed to do. That's why I'm a Southern Baptist, because I believe in congregational control of the church. All members of a church as a life related to Christ have equal rights in the church. There are no second-class citizens in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. That is the meaning of the word church. Let's talk about the organization of the church. The church has two officers and only two officers. 
It does not have five, and it does not have seven. There's some movements today that want to bring back the apostle, that want to bring back the prophet, that want to bring back all of these other offices in the church out of the Old Testament and make them applicable to today. According to the Word of God, a New Testament church has two officers, the pastor and the deacon. In fact, and let me just kind of throw this in there, the qualifying adjectives in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13 are all masculine. Just thought I'd mention that. Pastor and deacon, preacher and layman, pulpit and pew, vocational and avocational, salaried and unsalaried, the prophet from the standpoint of forthtelling and the people. Separately, they're like two merged together. They merge at the cross and form the strength and power of the church. When they're one in Christ, they make an unbeatable team. I've used the analogy of scissors. If you take a pair of scissors and unscrew the middle and take each part, you can cut with it. It'll cut, but it's not very good. It's when you hinge it together. Boy, it makes a dynamic cutting circus. That's what happens when the pastor and the deacon are on the same page. And in the churches that I have been the privilege to be in over the years, it is obvious when they're on the same page. It breaks my heart to go to some communities and find out the joke in the community is the pastor and the deacons are crossways down at the First Baptist Church. And the whole community knows about it. And they laugh at it. It becomes a joke. When it ought to be the hinge point, it ought to be the linchpin for everything that happens in the church. An understanding of who we are as pastor, an understanding of what we are as a deacon. And before I go any further, I am an ordained deacon as well as a licensed ordained minister. Thank you very much. I've sat on both sides of the table. And I know the tensions that come from sitting on both sides of the table. I know the viewpoint that comes from sitting on both sides of the table. And so each is separate. Each is distinctive in what they do. And the names alone help us to know that they're distinctive. First of all, the word about the office of the pastor, because I'm afraid that is misunderstood. There are three words that describe the office of the pastor, and they're interchangeable. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and 28, Titus 1, 5 through 7, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. What are the three words? The first word is the word episkopos. Uh, episcopos comes from a preposition. Uh, epi over scopos to scope out. An episcopos, an episcopalian, is one who oversees. He's to oversee what goes on. When you have a new pastor here, no matter what happens in this church, ultimately it is his responsibility. Now that's not fair, but that's the way it is. Whatever takes place, he is ultimately responsible for it. That's why he brings some people around him. And a wise pastor is one who knows he can't do everything and he shouldn't do everything and you sin against God when you try to make your pastor do everything. You get people around you, talented, gifted people, and you turn them loose. You give them parameters of what they're supposed to do and you turn them loose and let them do the work of ministry. 
Many hands make light work, and that's the role of a pastor. Now, he still is to be over it and to oversee it, but he's not to do it. This refers to the function of the office of pastor or his assignment, the episcopos. Modern-day language, it's translated bishop, bishop. But there's another word, presbyteros. It's where we get the word elder. That's how it's translated in your New Testament, an elder. And the use of the word in Kone Greek means an older man. It was used of an ambassador. It was used of a senior citizen. It was used of one who has dignity and honor and, most importantly, wisdom. A pastor is to oversee everything, the episcopos, but he's also, he's also to have some wisdom about him. That's why at a church this size, you don't call a guy right out of college, right out of seminary. You need somebody with some experience. You've got to deal with a multi-staff. You've got to deal with budgets of millions of dollars. You've got to deal with locations, and now you're dealing with buildings and buildings and transitioning a church. That is not something for a novice. Nothing against the young folks. But, son, you don't have enough miles on you to do that. You've got to have some wrinkles in the brown, some, um, some uh, snow on the roof <laughs> to do that. Now, I'm not saying every pastor has to be gray-headed. Most pastors I know after they've been there a while will become gray-headed, but you don't have to be gray-headed. I have met some 60-year-old immature men, and I have met some very mature 30-year-olds. So I'm not talking about age, but I am talking about age. A, a pastor ought to have some, some maturity to him. He ought to have been around the block a few times to where everything is not new to him and to where he has a background that he can fall back on. So there's the episcopos, the bishop. There's the presbyteros, the elder. And there's the shepherd, the poiman. Pastor means herdsman, means one who tends the flock. It, this relates to the heart of the man. Presbyteros relates to the qualities of the man. And episcopos relates to the function of the man. All of these are interchangeable, and all of these are referring to the same person. These are just various facets of who he is. So when you, you call a pastor, you're getting a multifaceted individual, one who's different things, but he's the same thing, different qualities, but the same person. Now, the Greek word for deacon is the word dikononos. In classic Greek, it refers to a servant. It does not refer to a preacher. It does not refer to an administrator. It does not refer to a teacher. It refers to a servant or a slave in some cases, especially one who's acting in the capacity of helping others with something. Serving is the key. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, which is ancillary to the gifts in verse 27, speaking of the church body, it mentions helps and government as gifts. This means administration. The church is to do things decently and in order. There's to be organization in the church. It is not to be shoot from the hip, scatter and run and do this and do that. Deacons are to help keep order. 
not to sow discord and disorder. Let's talk for a moment about licensing and ordination because after all, ordination is what we will do in just a moment. When you license a person to the ministry, normally this is to the gospel ministry, though normally this is a pastor or a preacher. It's the public recommendation or commendation of a church that they've seen this person and they believe his gifts are adequate for him to exercise his gifts in the gospel ministry. It is a word of approval, if you will. It is a stamp of approval, normally given by the home church that the person has grown up in. And this church has licensed. I remember when I was here five, six years ago, there were several men that we licensed. And that is a good thing for a church to do. When they see somebody who has some giftedness and wants to go into the ministry, believe God called him, not his grandmother or his mother called him to be a preacher, but God called him to be a preacher, then the church approves that. They pat him on the back. They applaud him. That gives him a jump start, and he becomes a licensed minister. There's also ordination. Ordination, on the other hand, is not licensing. It's a step past licensing. It is the setting aside of a God-called person for a particular office. It may be a pastor, a staff assignment, or even an evangelist. And yes, we ordain deacons. Ordination is the public investiture of the church with official authority. It is strictly scriptural. It is not, however, the ultimate source of ministerial authority. That is found of the call of the Holy Spirit as recognized by the church. Interesting, the word does not so much refer to a ceremony but to the choice or the appointment to the office. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Acts chapter 1, verse 22, and 17, verse 31. When you look at the qualifications for a bishop, for a pastor, for an elder, for a shepherd, and the qualifications for a deacon, they're almost identical. God doesn't expect more of the pastor than he does of you men as deacons. God doesn't expect more of you than he does of him. The ground is level. Our office is different. Our assignment is different. Our qualifications are pretty much the same thing. The appointment of a bishop or a deacon, all of it refers to virtually the same thing. And let me read that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read this as a recap. This is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Here we're talking about the pastor now. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, not a striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now we make a transition. That was the pastor. That was the bishop. Verse 8, likewise must the deacons. Likewise. In other words, everything I've said, just keep going. <laughs> Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith 
and a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. It's been my experience, not in this church, but in a lot of churches, when we get to the point of the qualifications of a deacon, we immediately run to the alcohol issue and we run to how many times they've been married. Those are important. Those are important. But you know the most important qualification for a deacon is not those two. It's to hold the mystery of godliness with a pure conscience. I can tell you, I've been in the ministry 45 years, and I've had more trouble with deacons who weren't spirit-filled than I have deacons who were drunk. Is it important, the other? Absolutely. But we immediately run so we can count this. How many times have they been married? Do they drink? What you really want to know is do they love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart? And is the gospel a mystery? A mystery. How in God's name could you love me enough to send your son to die on a cross for me? Oh, that's a mystery to me. I believe it. And I'm going to share it. But oh my goodness how good God is that he would put us in that position. That's the kind of man I want as a deacon. I want a man who's, who's got a boldness that comes out of an understanding that great is the mystery of godliness in Jesus Christ. That's the man I want serving with me. So we've seen the meaning of the church. We've seen the organization of the church. Now very quickly, very quickly, and I know what time it is, so just relax. Very quickly. The operation of the church. How does a church operate? Here it is. If you've ever wondered, here it is. A Baptist church is pastor-led, deacon-served, staff-operated, if you have a staff, if you're large enough to have a staff, committee-directed, and congregation-approved. Let me say it again. A Baptist church is pastor-led, deacon-served, staff-operated, committee-directed, and congregation-approved. We're a congregational form of government. Let me give you an example of that. Last week, we voted on selling this property. Now, what we didn't do is get all six, 800, or ever how many there are in both, get everybody together in a big room and us meet about 25 times for six to eight hours at a time and come up with an idea of what we need to do. Folks, that is futility at its zenith. You can't do that. So what do you do? You get a smaller group, representative of the body, and you charge them with the responsibility, check this out. And I'm going to just tell you, I've been in enough of these meetings with these fine men that are on these committees around here. They know what they're doing. And they're talking to the people who know even more than they know what they're doing. And so they check this out, check that out. We think about this, pray about that, work this out, work this, pray, work this, and we come with a proposal. And then what do we do with it? We bring it back to the church for the church 
to vote. The pastor can't sell this church. Certainly the interim pastor can't sell this church. A committee can't sell this church. You sold this church. The congregation. But it was because you had had all this work done and then they bring you a report and you vote it up, vote it down. That's how we do our business in a Baptist church. Vote it up, vote it down. I know some churches that never get to that. They go in ever-widening circles and they never make a decision about anything. Vote it. And then you find out if you've done a good job of explaining it or if it's God's will not to do it. I mean, you find out a lot of things. But vote on it. And that's what we did last week. And 94%. I don't know if you know much about votes, but that's a mighty good vote. It shows unity. And it shows trust in those who are doing the behind-the-scenes work. Same thing with the pastor search committee. We don't have you all out going all over the country trying to find a pastor. You selected a group of people and you charged them. You set parameters up of what they're to do. And at the right time, they will bring back a recommendation for you. And you vote it up, you vote it down. Ultimately, in a Baptist church, the power is not here. It's there. So don't talk to me about what our church is or is not doing. That's you. We are not doing, or we are doing. It's not them. <laughs> it's not us and them. It's us. And so that's how our church operates. The pastor sets the pace. No church moves past the pastor in the spirituality that he displays. He sets the place. He is a visionary. Most pastors are visionaries. That's why it scares congregations to death when we start talking about what we're going to do over the hill because most folks can't see to the hill. I'm just telling you, we can't. But you have a visionary pastor who's over the next hill and over the next hill and over the next hill. Now, he has to bring his people along with him or he'll scare them and he'll run them off and they won't do anything. That's part of leadership. That's part of what a good leader is. But the deacons serve. The staff operate. When you get to a certain size of a church, you have to have a staff to do some of the work. But how do they do their work? The committees set parameters for them to do their work and then tell them, go do it. And the staff works within those parameters. And if they come up against something that's outside the parameter, they go back to the committee and say, boy, you're not going to believe this, but look at this. What do you guys think? And they tell him what to do. They may need to go to the church to get approval. All of it is done decently in order. There's organization. But ultimately, everything comes back to the congregation for you to approve. That's why I am a Southern Baptist. I don't want the elders telling me what to do. It's not their job. An elder rule is not what I recommend for a church. Period. Because I'm Baptist. I am not Presbyterian. Nothing against the Presbyterians. Please, please. But I'm a Baptist. And I believe in congregational control. And I do believe that is the model in the New Testament. This morning, we have the privilege of ordaining three men as deacons. And so, 
I'm going to have a prayer. And as I'm having prayer, they're going to bring three chairs up here. And men, if you would come and take your seat. And then their wives are going to come and stand right behind them. And um, then we'll uh, give them a little gift and have something to say to them. But while I pray, gentlemen, if you'll get the chairs ready and if you'll get ready to come, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this special time in the life of these men. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for their families. Thank you for the commitment that has led them to this place. I pray today that as they take their place, as they are recognized, as the church ordains them, they understand that this is, doesn't make them special. They're not elevated in the kingdom. If anything, they're demoted in the kingdom. They become servants. But oh, how an organization needs servanthood. It needs those people who will do the work behind the scenes who never get credit. Things will happen because of what they do that nobody ever hears about. And so, Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you for these precious wives, for their families. I thank you that, that there's a commitment that the wives make because there's going to be meetings. There's going to be time away. There's going to be ministry done. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless them today and help them to know that we're a church that loves them. We support them. And we're so grateful they're there to bear up under the load and help those who are already serving. And I ask this all in Christ's name.